CNN. 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 Radio. This is CNN Profiles, where we interview people who have the experience and insights that can help shape our perspective on the things that matter most. I'm your host, Michael Schulder, and joining us now is a man we all know, but not really. David Gergen is our CNN senior political analyst. David, welcome to CNN Profiles. Thank you, Michael. It's good to be here. Well, David, whenever I'm with a group of people and I tell them I work for CNN and the discussion turns to politics, this is what I often hear. I really like that, David Gergen. It doesn't, <laughs> it doesn't matter what their politics are. They say, I really... In fact, 47% of them say that. That's, <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, those 47% who are dependent upon CNN, right? That's, that's uh, right. <laughs> yeah. But, but they say, you know, it doesn't matter what their politics is. And then they ask me, is he a nice guy? So... Uh, Are you a nice guy? Well, depends on who you ask. I, I wouldn't put that question to my wife today, but then maybe tomorrow. <laughs> she, Monday, Wednesday, Friday, I think she thinks I'm okay. She's British, and we've been married 30 years. She decided to become an American citizen, so I decided after 30 years, I guess she made up her mind, I'm okay. Let me ask you, I, I was looking at your resume, and I'm, I'm a father of three young children, and we have this uh-huh. we have this phenomenon today, and I know you're a father and a grandfather as well, right? You have how many right, children? Um, how, yes. How many children? We have two wonderful children, one of whom is a, a doctor. Our daughter's a doctor who lives in Boston. She works at the Boston Medical Center. She's a family doc, is a big believer in integrative medicine, and she's working with a lot of the underserved population in Boston. Uh, and our son has moved his family to Durham, North Carolina, where I actually grew up. And he's an entrepreneur. He's created some organizations there in, in Durham and Charlotte and Raleigh. So three so far, more to come. So, so you have a couple of very successful children. Yeah. And, and I'm looking at your resume. And, you know, we have this phenomenon, sure. as you know, today in parenting. We parents, we have always wanted the best for our children. And it seems we're in a hyper-competitive world. And I look at your resume. Yale undergrad, Harvard Law School, U.S. Navy, advisor to four presidents from two parties. And I'm thinking, what did your parents do to get it, what were they responsible for your trajectory and to what extent and in what way? Well, they, they were the most influential people in my life, uh, certainly for the, the early years. And they were, you know, I, had, I was extremely fortunate to have two wonderful parents and three older brothers uh, growing up in the South. You know, we I grew up on a dirt road there and I just had a wonderful, wonderful childhood and uh, I read a lot. One of the things that led me, and you'll, you'll appreciate this. Um, I used to play a lot of uh, baseball and other sports, and and when I and very active in little league and pony league and sort of things like that, and did pretty well with it. Um, but then there was when I was about thirteen or fourteen, I had this huge spurt in height. I gained about six or seven inches in a, a year or so. I'd completely lost my control, and and I was a pitcher, and uh, I went out for the high school for high school f- uh, baseball team. And uh, uh, and we were in w- winter practice. We were in a gymnasium, and I threw a ball. I, I really lost my control. I threw a ball, and it went through a window in the gymnasium. And the, the only real hooker is that it, was, it went through a window on the second floor. <laughs> 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 so I decided, you know, um, uh, I was by that time I was writing little articles for this for the um, local paper, the Durham Morning Herald, and for the Durham Sun, which was our afternoon paper at that time. And uh, I turned into a sports writer when I was in high school, and I, I covered all the college's sports and, and uh, covered the high school sports, and I spent a lot of time, I was editor of the high school newspaper, and I just thoroughly enjoyed it, and ve- uh, eventually moved over to uh, covering the news, and I, you know, I started with obituaries, as, as I think properly, you need to pay your dues. 
and then sort of cover local news, and I eventually wound up covering state news. When, and, and actually, when I went off to college, it was 1959. I'm that old. And I went off to college, and uh, my newspaper uh, sent me to cover Khrushchev's visit with Eisenhower in Washington. And I went around with the National Press Corps. I was, you know, 16, 17 years old. And I just I got drawn into it. I was, I was very excited by public affairs. It was um, being in journalism. Every day you woke up, there was something new you learned, and you met interesting people. Um, uh, and that, in turn, led me to um, – I, I had some real mentors in life who were wonderful and became wonderful friends. And in, in 1960, I was then early in college, not only was Jack Kennedy elected as president, and he was an inspirational force for our generation, but a fellow named Terry Sanford was elected governor of North Carolina. And uh, he was a very progressive and good governor, and I knew him, and he encouraged me. I, I became an intern in his, his offices. And uh, that was during the period of civil rights, and I uh, very quickly moved over and became very deeply involved in civil rights, working for Terry. And we had, a, we had something called a Good Neighbor Council, and we were trying to set them up around the state to try to keep racial peace, but to make progress on jobs and on uh, integration. And uh, I worked for a fellow who had been a, a farmer there for a long time and a budget director, and he used to be a segregationist, and he had completely changed his mind. And I, I was his top assistant. We, I drove him around, calling him, his name was Dave Coltrane. I was driving Mr. Dave. We went all over the state working on racial issues. And I did that for three years in the summers. And it was a real turning point. It was the most satisfying job I've ever had in public service. Uh, and I look back and I've been extremely privileged in life working in White Houses and, you know, helping out on the side and kibitzing on the side. But uh, that, that time in civil rights to me was the most deeply satisfying because I think it really met some human needs and did it in a very constructive way. And you talk about this mentor, Dave Coltrane, who changed his mind on yeah. such a, a such a divisive issue. Do you see today in Washington the chance to change their minds on divisive issues and come closer together? I I think there are individuals, and I'm encouraged by this. I I, I look. I'm 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 a short-term pessimist and a long-term optimist about this country. I think the next few years are going to be rough. Whoever gets elected, but I think the long term is very promising for America. And I think you should never bet against this country. We're very resilient people, and I think we will deal with and address some of these issues. But it's going to take longer than any of us would like. But I can't tell you, Michael, how many. Uh, senators tell me they're very, very unhappy to be in this situation where they seem to be part of an unproductive body. You know, they're embarrassed by 10 percent approval ratings. Who wouldn't be embarrassed? And they, they didn't come to Washington just to collect a paycheck. They really, most of them are honest folks who really came. They, they have different visions of what America should be. They have conflicting visions. But most of them are honest folk. You, you know, it reminds me a little bit, having read your book that you wrote, uh, well, 12 years ago now, before September mm -hmm. 11th. Uh, mm -hmm. And uh, if, if you could remind us uh, that the name of the book was "Eyewitness to Power." Eyewitness uh, to Power, and it was, yes, and it was about your experience working under four different presidents. You know, yes, Nixon, uh, Ford, Reagan, and Clinton. When I told my 11-year-old yeah. son that I was interviewing you and you and you had worked for Nixon, he said, "How did that work out?" <laughs> Well, I'm not sure. Nixon thought it worked out very well. Well, the, um, well, well but just just to say one thing, I, I remember reading yeah. one passage in your Nixon chapter, and it, and it reminds me yeah. of what you're saying now, uh, that Nixon's advisors, knowing his weaknesses, they try to strengthen his positive instincts. You wrote, uh, so yeah, that was a, uh, so yeah. that he was truly capable of greatness. Well, I tell you, Nixon, um, more than almost anybody I've ever seen, had a very bright side, a luminous side, but he also had a dark side. 
and there was a there's a, a, a psychologist uh, um, or psychoanalyst really, Carl Jung, who was a colleague of Freud's. Um, Jung made the argument that all of us are born with bright sides and dark sides, and our our quest in life in order to become a mature individual is to somehow weave them together so that they're more in harmony and the dark side doesn't triumph, our bad impulses don't sort of overtake us. And Nixon had this very, very bright side, but unfortunately he had not learned to control the demons inside him. And he had very dark demons that he had roiling with sort of internal hatreds and resentments that you, you didn't see until you got to know him. He, when he opened up, he, when I first started to work for him, I was a kid, and I, didn't, I saw the bright side. And I, he, was, he, he, had, he was very, very bright, and he and Kissinger used to, you know, they would have big debates about, you know, World War I generals and who was a better general. Or Pat Moynihan, another wonderful mentor of mine in life, uh, he worked for Nixon and, and would give him reading lists. And Nixon would read about, you know, Disraeli and come down and talk about it in the morning, what, how this conservative prime minister in Britain actually started the welfare state uh, in Britain and how, it, you know, Bismarck as a conservative started in Germany. How interesting that was that a conservative would actually be the, the creator of a welfare state. And Nixon actually, in many ways, if, if you look back upon the Nixon years, uh, my friend Mark Shields, who was a wonderful friend for a long time and still is, calls Nixon the last liberal president. It's interesting. I think I think it actually captures him pretty well. But he had this dark side, and you know that's what led to Watergate. And he just he had this paranoid side to him that was it just overpowered him, and and uh, he became the architect of his own demise. You know, when he was interviewed by David Frost. Uh, BBC uh, and that famous set of interviews after he left office and Frost asked him what happened and I think Nixon said very aptly he said I gave my enemies a sword and they ran me through hmm. many years after he left office and Clinton was about to be inaugurated you said that uh, uh, Nixon called you in to relay mm-hmm. some advice to, to the new yeah. president Clinton do you remember what that yeah. advice was yeah I, yeah, I do remember very well. Nixon called me and he was coming to Washington. He said, can we have breakfast? And I said, sure, I'd love to see him. So I realized soon in, I, we were not there just to chit-chat. Or He didn't, wasn't asking my profound thoughts about the day. Uh, he wanted me to relay, relay messages to Clinton, uh, who was president. And uh, which, that's fine. I've been an errand boy before. The um, uh, but one of his main messages this was about uh, about the NAFTA treaty. The NAFTA was a com- you know was a treaty with with Mexico and Canada with you know, and the United States as a three party to have free trade among the three nations. And there was a lot of resistance to it within the Democratic Party, within the labor unions who, who didn't want this free trade treaty. And and Clinton as a Democrat, of course, that was part of his base. And Nixon wanted to get a message to him about uh, why he he really ought to. Uh, uh, support NAFTA and, and, and go for it in, in the Congress and how, how much part of his legacy would be. And he said, if he wa- and Nixon said, if he wants to understand how important a NAFTA would be to the United States, ask him to read about the repeal of the Corn Laws in Britain. And I was looking at myself thinking, Corn Laws in Britain, what was that all about? When did that happen? So I had to go back and check. And it was back in the 1840s. And these were, and these, this lifted tariffs in effect on. And it led to a boom. And by, by repealing the Corn Laws, the British unlocked their economy. Free trade, you know, lifted Britain into be this great power that it was. The Britannia ruled the seas for a long time. And but it was only only Nixon was one of the only people I ever met in politics who would have that historical understanding and that historical analogy. He would go back. In the earlier days of our republic, and the founding fathers read deeply into history. They understood, and they looked at the Roman experience and the, and the, and the Greek experience. Uh, and they, you know, they were more in love with the Romans and the Greeks in, at that time. Uh, but they they took lessons.
lessons from that about how to run a country. And we, ha- we have forgotten how important history is. Uh, you know, we, we sort of live so much in the present. Uh, and we don't understand sort of how do we get here. And one of the things that I think we need to pass on to the next generation, and I've just been spending time with Sandra Day O'Connor, and I'm so, you know, she's she's got on a mission now at 82 years old, and I think she's a wonderful woman, to bring civics, civic education back to uh, middle schoolers. Because unless people understand what an experiment this country was, how fragile democracy is, this is, you know, democracy it, it, it didn't... It, for most of human history, it, it never survived. We had few experiments here and there, but it never survived. The United States was the pioneer in, in setting up a democratic country, and it was, as Lincoln said, the last great hope of man. Uh, and I think that the more people understand how precious the historical traditions of this country and the democracy is, I think the more they understand that, the more we'll, we'll, we'll work together to ensure we work through these disputes. We have deep-seated disputes, but we have to get there. Let, let me take you back to that Nixon uh, conversation you had with you, because there was one other quote that you didn't mention, which re- which really struck me. Uh, sure. He said, you know, when you tell, if you tell President Clinton to support that controversial policy, tell him there are things worse than losing. And and, yes. you, and you read this in business magazines all the time, that you've got to take risk, you've got to be able to lose. Do you sense that there is any appetite to lose in politics for a greater cause, I think there have been individuals, um, and uh, you know, I'm I'm not a total fan of everything President Obama has done, uh, but I do think, uh, and having worked for two of the seven presidents who tried to get a health care, national health care bill passed, and you know, all seven of those preceding presidents failed, uh, and I don't there are there aspects of Obamacare that I don't you know don't happen to support. Uh, but I give him credit uh, because that was a big risk, and he knew going into that. I talked to people at the White House. He knew going into that he was going to take a real hit on his polls. Um, that it was going to be that there was going to be a lot of unpopularity to it. It's always been. That's why it's been so rough to get it done. Um, and uh, I give him credit for that. I thought he showed political courage in doing that. Uh, and uh, even though I disagree with aspects of it. Um, I, I think we need more political figures who are willing to do the tough things. Now, the question becomes, uh, if the next president, whether it's President Obama, who's now favored, or or Mitt Romney, um, whether they'll have the guts to tackle some of the things we have to do, we have to get these these deficits under control. That means we're going to have to do some tough things, not only on taxes, but we're going to have to do some tough things on Medicare and on Medicaid. And somebody's got to have the guts to stand up and do those things. And I think the measure of the next president is whether that person has the courage to take on the really tough issues, pay the price, and get it done. So have you heard anybody say anything that encourages you that somebody is willing to pay the price? And it takes more than one person, of course, to pay the price. I, the, one of the great disappointments of this presidential campaign is that nobody's doing anything risky. How can, uh, we, how can we reshape that as journalists? Well, you know, um, that's a good question. I, I, I frankly think that we in journalism are contributing to more than we would like to acknowledge to the deterioration of the discourse, uh, to the degree to which this has become all about a food fight and not about serious conversations about what really needs to be done. There is an enormous tendency to, uh, when we put guests on the air, to get people who are, you know, diametrically opposed to each other and just argue, uh, as opposed to trying to find people who can who can build bridges. 
you know, because that's not as it's not as interesting television when you have people who are more constructive. It's it's calmer, but it's not as interesting, and uh, and you don't get the audience. And I think we go down market too often uh, to try to you know to try to excite people or get them or get them angry as opposed to sort of looking square in the eye at what the country faces. We have some very very serious problems. If we solve these problems, our future is going to be enormously bright. But if we don't, we're going to con- we're going to condemn our kids. Your young kids are going to live in a very different country. Would and would you? Is, you know, yeah, you were. Ahead, you, you, I'm sorry. You, uh, sorry for interrupting. But you worked under Nixon, Ford, Reagan, and Clinton. Would any of them, if you could channel them right now, would they have? Would they be doing something different? Well, let me make one big distinction without going into individual personalities, if you don't mind. And that is, I think there was an enormous difference between the World War II generation in Washington and the people who've come since. When I got to Washington, the the country that was largely being governed, and I got there in the early 70s, and the country was largely being governed by, by veterans of World War II. These were people who came of age uh, during the war. We had seven presidents, uh, starting with John Kennedy, a Democrat, running through Lyndon John, uh, running through George Bush Sr., a Republican. Seven presidents, all of whom wore a military uniform. Six were in the war. Jimmy Carter was the only one. Who, he, he was in the Naval Academy when the war ended, and he went on to serve honorably in the, in the, in the, as you know, in the, in the Navy. Um, but all seven gave back to this country when they were young. They all served the country and served some larger cause when they were young. And as a result of that, and they were symptomatic of that, or they were symbolic of that generation, when they came to Washington, they were strong Democrats and they were strong Republicans, but first and foremost, they thought of themselves as strong Americans. And at the end of the day, after they had been fighting all the time, they understood that they had to put down their differences and find common ground and get things solved and move on. You can't let things just sort of sit there and, you know, fester because if you don't deal with some of these public policy problems when they're when they're new and fresh, when they fester, they become putrid and it becomes really hard to solve them and you pay a huge price and a lot of people suffer. And I found in that generation a much greater willingness to work across the aisle. And, and there's no better example um, than uh, Ronald Reagan, who I was proud to serve, and uh, Tip O'Neill, one a strong conservative president in the White House, the other Tip O'Neill, a Democratic, you know, is, uh, um, he was you know, head of the House of Representatives. And uh, and they had, and, they, and because they, were, they had big, big philosophical differences. But at five o'clock at night, they could usually put down their differences and lift up a glass and, uh, and, and toast each other and tell a lot of Irish yarns and laugh and scratch out a good time. Um, but I'll tell you a story I enjoy telling. When Tip turned 70, I think it was 70, uh, Reagan gave a, a, a big a birthday party for him, a luncheon in the White House, and invited all of Tip's friends. A lot of Democrats came to the White House. And uh, and at the end of the lunch, Reagan got up to, to toast, give a little toast, and he'd written out some doggerel, as he liked to do. And he said, Tip, if I had a ticket to heaven and you didn't have one too, well, I'd give my ticket back and go to hell with you. <laughs> 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 that was the spirit of the time. I think that the the departure of that generation, they, they've sort of moved off the stage now. They're, they're much older, of course. Uh, it, it led to a new generation that I'm part of that came to Washington that is, you know, we didn't grow up at a time when we all had a had a good war of the Second World War. We grew up at a time of, of the Vietnam War, and it split our generation right down the middle. It was like an ax down the middle of our generation. We had a cultural revolution, a lot of which was terrific. You know, most of it, 
I think it was you know civil rights revolution, the women's revolution, you know consumer rights, environmental. There were a lot of terrific things that happened in the, in the 60s and 70s. But we became very culturally split. Uh, so that if you went to the University of Nebraska, for example, University of Oklahoma, you came out with very different values than if you went to Ann Arbor or went to went to Brown or went to Yale or something like that. It was, uh, and and our, we remain split as a generation, and it's much much harder to govern in our generation, much harder to govern. Which reminds uh, me, which reminds me of a quote that you quoted, Patrick Moynihan. Who uh, uh-huh. did you did you say he was one of your mentors? Yes, uh, 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 extraordinary man, uh, and, and who, who 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 you quoted as saying that when it comes to the president, we must pray for his success. And yet today mm. we find that so many people on whatever the other side of the aisle is are praying for the president's failure. How do you correct Absolutely. that? And again, can the media play a role in changing that uh, that way of thinking? I think the media can play a role. I think the media should. Look, I think the fundamental problem is we've had a breakdown in our political culture. You know, we have a we have a rancid political culture, and and I think the question is how do we create an environment in which people can work together, can say things that actually get on the air, uh, that are reasonable and that are constructive, a ways of looking for solutions, and encourage an environment in which we move away from the uh, you know, what what um, President Clinton called the politics of personal destruction. Uh, in which you know we try to destroy each other, uh, and and I think frankly, you know, we in the press contribute to that. Um, we don't like to think we do, but I think I think I think in many ways we do. Um, and I th- so I think I think for us, it is a question of we 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 can help set the tone of the conversation in a country. I think we have a responsibility to do that well. Uh, you know. I think the more we pause and sort of sometimes and reflect on what we're talking about and how to how to how to make reach a more constructive end, or have shows that do that. I'm not saying that ought to be that ought to be the dominant way that everything's done, but I think we have to have more oases, if you like, uh, in both on the internet and on uh, and on the air. Uh, when we try to have more constructive conversations. So, so I think you've just given me the, the name of a new show that we should start. I don't know if I have the authority to get it done at CNN, The Political Oasis. Is that a show you would, <laughs> is that a show you would want to contribute to? I would do that in a heartbeat. Uh, let me ask you just a couple of final questions because I know you're in sure. a rush. But, but uh, there's a fascinating anecdote when you, were, when you were working for President Reagan as his communications director. Is that correct? Yes. And, and you were preparing him for his debate with President Carter. And I did not know until I read it last night that you were responsible, it seems, for one of the most famous debate lines ever. And as we approach the debate, can you tell us the story of how sure. you came you're, up you're, with that debate line? Yeah, you're, you're giving me far too much credit. And most of the credit properly belongs to, uh, to Ronald Reagan. Um, I, I was a newcomer to the um, uh, Reagan campaign in 1980 when he was running against Jimmy Carter. I had worked for, I'd been a volunteer for George H.W. Bush, so I was on the other side. Um, but when Jim Baker was recruited to to come over to the Reagan campaign and then to be in charge of the debate negotiations, uh, Jim asked me if I would, um, if I would in effect, uh, prepare the debate books, the uh, briefing books, and also help to run the, uh, the debate preparations. Uh, as we went through the debate preparations, um, he needed a, he was going to have one debate with Jimmy Carter. It was the only debate. It was a crucial debate. And 
uh, we needed a concluding statement, a closing statement. You know, it was a very important part of a debate. And uh, the, the task for preparing that closing statement, a draft closing statement, fell to, uh, to me and to Dick Worthland. Dick Worthland had been with President Reagan a long time as his pollster and strategist. And he was a PhD, a very smart guy in politics. And uh, so we, we sat down together to draft something. And, and Dick, said, who'd worked with him a long time, said, you know what really works with the, with the governor is rhetorical questions. If he can put a rhetorical question out that this, he knows essentially what the audience is going to respond to, it's very, very effective as a, as a, as a means of communication. So it, with that in mind, uh, Dick and I wrote out the statement, and we asked a series of rhetorical questions right at the end of the draft. And one was, are you better off today than you were four years ago? Uh, and uh, that's the line President Reagan adopted, embraced, and used in a debate. Uh, I'm, I think it came from the two of us, but there are, I've heard others say they thought that was actually either Newt Gingrich or Jack Kemp sent it into the campaign, and I know that Jack Kemp was, you know, he was, he was a favorite of, of Reagan. So it's, it, it, I don't want to say exactly, because I, I, that's the way I remember the story. I don't remember the Kemp coming in with it, but he might have, and, and, and Jack Kemp deserves a lot of credit for a lot of things in life. Um, you know, it's one of those things that you sometimes strike gold. Uh, when you're not, when you're out there panhandling in the, in the river, occasionally you get a gold nugget, and uh, we were lucky and came up with a line that uh, was uh, very, very effective. But give credit to to Ronald Reagan that he deserves most of it. It was his debate. He and he won the election with that. Uh, you know, he was he was already close, but he opened it up and he really he really won pretty big because of that debate. Final question for you: How old are your grandkids? <laughs> Thank you for asking. Well, we have four. We're very deeply blessed. We have two on each side and boy and a girl on each side. But the, the good news is that our, our daughter is now pregnant with a, a, another child. And so we'll have five uh, come January. If, if the Lord blesses us, we'll have five in then. And, 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 and they're, all, they're and, all under 10. They're all under 10. You know, you, yeah. the, the opening line of your book uh, from 12 years ago is, uh, it is just possible that we are living at the dawn of a new golden age. If you had all your grandchildren gathered around your lap, what would you tell them about the coming years that they're going to be entering in, in their language, in language they understand? I, I, was, I would tell them that life, is, um, that life has many promises, that there are enormous um, times, there are enormous opportunities for them to, to be happy and to, to give back to others, uh, but it's going to be hard work. And we've got to, and, and in order to get there, it's not just a question of working together, it's a question of loving each other and building a community. David Gergen, thank you so much for joining us on CNN Profiles. Thank you, Michael. It's a privilege.